On August 19, 1980, a Saudi L-1011 is flying to Jeddah when it has to turn back and land at Riyadh International Airport. Find out what caused this flight to make an emergency landing and need to evacuate. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. Welcome to the show. Woo! Thanks to our new patrons. Wait for it. I haven't pulled up already. We have a lot. I don't know what happened. This past week was a lot. Thank you, by the way. We highly appreciate it. We got a lot of listens on the British Air Tours episode, which was very unexpected. I think we theorize it's because it was over two hours and people like our long episodes. The long episodes always give us a bump in listens. So thank you. And yes. I'm glad you appreciate us enough to listen to us for over two hours. Which yes. is great. Hey, and thanks. Welcome to the Hard Landings family, and welcome to the Patreon family. Family. Thanks. Okay, thank you too, Kirsten, Adam, Ash, and Yinka. Yay, thank you. Woo. Thank you, thank you so much. You guys don't realize how much. Thanks to all the patrons. You guys literally, that, that you're the only reason that this podcast keeps going. Yeah, you are what it makes helps. this possible. Definitely helps a lot. And thank you to everyone to boosting our uh, British Air Tours episode, because that will be relevant here shortly. Oh, good. (laughs) That's great. Also, real quick, before we forget, we realize that we've been promising Challenger for a while. So here's what we decided. We're going to make Challenger an extra episode for everyone to listen to, apart from your normal episodes on Tuesdays. Because scheduling it has been an actual freaking nightmare. Our guests have not helped. Literally, it's been a nightmare. So, instead of making it part of the normal schedule, everyone will be able to listen to it as an extra on the week it comes out. Which will be whenever our guest figures it out. So, there you go. But that way, everyone who keeps anticipating us doing Challenger... Which was supposed to be this week for like the 10th time. <laughs> but officially, <laughs> yeah. officially, we've made the decision to remove it from the normal schedule. It will just happen whenever we have moved one episode forward in order to... Keep the rest of the schedule the same. Yes. And that is this episode. Yep. So, so this episode is a fill-in episode that the rest of the schedule will then remain the same. If we told you when your recommendation will be coming out, it will remain the same. Yes. That being said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Saudi Arabian Airlines Flight 163. Thank you to our Irish patron, Bob. Bob. Yeah, thanks, for Bob. recommending this. And this is a big one. Yeah. A biggin I've never heard of before? I had, but yeah, it's a mighty biggin. Mighty biggin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you a mighty biggin. This happened on August 19th of 1980. That date will be important later. This was a Lockheed TriStar L-1011. Ah, TriStar. So this is a trijet, big trijet, wide body, two engines, one on each wing, and then one in the tail. It's been a while since we've talked about an L-1011. I don't even remember the last one. I know uh, episode Delta. three was. Oh, a Delta, Delta 191. Delta 191 was the last time we talked about the L-1011. That and was before a while that, ago. It's been a minute. It was episode three, right? And before that was episode three. Yep. Yeah. We just don't talk about these very often because actually they're pretty reliable airplanes. But that said, now I get to eat my words. This flight was from Karachi in Pakistan to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. The captain for this flight was Mohammed Ali Kowiter. He was 38 years old. He had 7,674 hours total, of which 388 hours were on the type. That's not a lot. Not a lot. No. And it goes down from there. The first officer was Sami Abdullah M. Hassanain. He had 1,000... 
1,615 hours total. He was 28 years old, by the way. He had 1,615 hours total, of which 125 hours were on the L-1011. So neither of these pilots really know what they're doing. Just you wait. Oh, good. He received his type rating on the L-1011 11 days before the accident. What? (laughs) The flight engineer was Bradley Curtis. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That is the most... You're expecting... (laughs) Not an American name. <laughs> well, no, you didn't think so. He's, he's American. Yeah, he's 42 years old. He had 650 hours total flying time, of which 157 hours were on the So L-1011. none of these people know what they're doing. He's American. Okay, <laughs> to put this in perspective, this L-1011 was delivered to the airline just, just under a year before this accident. Is it their only one? No, but the L-1011 was very new to them. Okay, well because then... Because the L-1011 was very... Okay, well then, I mean, we've talked about new airplanes on here before. Yes. Like, that's kind of common. Also, but they don't have, like, together, they don't have a lot of our flying experience, period. Nope. Nope. Between the three of them, I think they have a total of under 9,000 hours. Which is not great, since most of the captains we talk about have double digits and as their total. F- yeah, we're flying wide bodies here. These are heavy-duty airplanes. The flight from Karachi to Riyadh was carried out normally. They arrived at 7.06 p.m. Upon arrival at Riyadh, all passengers with their carry-ons were forced to disembark to clear customs. Which is weird. Yeah, Well, aren't they staying in Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Yes, but yes. Why do you have to clear customs more than once, then? This is, they don't, but it's kind of a weird thing. I don't wholly understand it. I don't know if it's because maybe in Jeddah they didn't have customs set up, or we'll talk about it, but maybe it's because Jeddah was too busy. Oh, all cargo and bags in the cargo hold were also unloaded oh, for customs sucks. for customs checks. Once all customs checks were completed, the passengers, bags, and cargo to continue on to Jeddah were then reloaded. Other passengers, bags, and cargo making their trek to Jeddah also loaded at that time. So some people got off in Riyadh. Not all of them continued on to Jeddah, mm. but most did, and a handful of people did board in Riyadh. The aircraft pushed back from the gate at 8.50 p.m. with 287 passengers, including 15 infants and 14 crew members, for a total of 301 people on board. Most were on their journey to Mecca for Ramadan. Oh, yeah. If Not the never, first time we've talked about that on this podcast. If you've never seen Mecca, it is crazy. Yeah. Especially Around Ramadan. Or any yes. other big holiday. holiday. Yeah. yeah. Because that's their holy land, and so yeah. it, it's packed with people. Which is why we were he was saying that maybe Jeddah was too busy with customs. Because that's the place to be. We've talked about them that before on the podcast. The aircraft departed from Riyadh at 9.08 p.m. The captain was to be the pilot monitoring, while the first officer was to be the pilot flying for this leg. Once the flight was airborne, they were cleared to fly to Jeddah via the Green 53 airway and cruise at flight level 350, or 35,000 feet. They were expected to arrive in Jeddah at 10.20 p.m., so it's not a very long flight. At 9.14 p.m. and 54 seconds, which was 6 minutes and 54 seconds after takeoff, as they were climbing away from the airport, a visual and audible warning began indicating from the flight engineer's position, indicating smoke in the aft C3 cargo compartment. The crew spent the next 4 minutes and 21 seconds. Yes, 4 minutes and 21 seconds. That's a long time. Confirming the warnings. The flight engineer went back into the cabin to examine the situation, and he returned 36 seconds later to inform the other flight crew that there was a fire in the rear of the aircraft. This gets really confusing, because now you've had the flight engineer go back to the back to say that there's a fire. At that time, the captain elected to return to Riyadh. 
9.20 p.m. and 17 seconds, the first officer made a radio call to the air traffic controller. While they were climbing through 22,000 feet, he stated, quote, 163, we are coming back to Riyadh, end quote. The airplane then began descending and making a turn back to the airport. The air traffic controller asked why they were returning, and the first officer replied, quote, We got fire in the cabin. Please alert the fire trucks, end quote. Yeah, it's kind of weird that he was like, we're going back to Riyadh, just so you know, but he never said, we are, we have an emergency, yeah, we nope. need a return. And they never declare one. And that's not great. Like, that's like an important thing so ATC can get everybody out of the way, so yeah. you can land safely. Which you can kind of tell these he, these pilots are not very experienced pilots already. Oh yeah, we forgot to say, Miranda Rage warning. Yeah, this one might... It's definitely not going to be the worst one. No. But it is going to be... Not great. Not great. Oh, good. ATC then cleared the flight for an immediate descent and gave them priority for landing, then advised them that they were 78 miles from Riyadh. So they had 78 miles to return. 9.21 and 9 seconds, the air traffic controller asked them if the fire was in the engine, to which they replied, quote, negative, in the cabin, end quote. They're just real short, real short about all of this. Did they... This would not help. Well, I guess they would have gotten a... I think in the cockpit, if it was an engine. Correct. Yes, correct. So they knew it wasn't that. This is not an engine fire. No, this is not an engine fire. ATC then asked the flight crew how many souls were on board, to which they responded, quote, don't know exactly, think we have a full load. What? Where's your manifest? What crew doesn't know their weight and balance on a big plane like that? Yeah, what the What kind of crew are you? 9.21 p.m. and 53 seconds. The flight engineer returned to the cockpit after a second examination of the cabin, at which time he informed the captain that it was just some smoke in the aft cabin. So he had told them it was a fire, they're now reacting to a fire, now he's saying, oh, it's just smoke. Yes, but if there's smoke, right. usually there's fire. there's fire. The captain reiterated that they were still going to return to Riyadh, so they were still keeping with this just plan. Just a good idea anyway. Yes. When you don't know where the smoke is coming from... Look, there's one good decision. That said... The flight engineer then stated that everyone in the back were panicking, and then asked if the fire trucks had been alerted, which the captain replied that they were. At 9.23 p.m. and 4 seconds, the captain called for the landing preliminary checklist. At 9.24 and 41 seconds, another oral warning began sounding, and the flight engineer stated, quote, there goes A. So there's a B warning and an A warning. Yes. What do they mean? Confirmation of the other? They're just a backup system for these... So think systems. of it as having two smoke detectors in one room. If oh, one... they're like smoke detectors? These are smoke yeah. detectors. Oh, okay. Yes. So That's, now... That was my question. Is yeah. what the, it's the warning for? They're backup smoke detectors for one another. So B went off first. Now A is going Now A is oh, going Oh, okay. Off. So they've confirmed there's some smoke somewhere in the cargo hold. 9.26 p.m. The captain stated that the number two engine throttle was stuck and that he was going to shut that engine down. One of the cabin crew members then came into the cockpit to report that there was a fire in the cabin. Thank you. Third time we figured that out now. Useful information. 9.25 p.m. and 55 seconds, the captain told the flight engineer to inform the air traffic controller that there was an actual fire in the cabin. First of all, pretty sure they already told ATC that there was a fire. Yes. Second of all, you should have done that originally when you found out there was smoke in the cabin. You are not wrong. Like, why are you discussing this now? Yep. Oh, just, this is just, it just gets better. (sighs) The air traffic controller advised them that the fire trucks were in position and waiting. A moment later, another cabin crew member came into the cockpit and stated, quote, There is no way I can go back aft of the L2 and R2 doors because the people are fighting in the aisles. End quote. Holy <laughs> What? <laughs> yeah. 
Your entire job is to keep them calm and keep them in their seats. Oh, believe me, they were trying. They were very much trying. To be fair, passengers, people who are listening, uh, tend to be... Unruly? Yeah, when there's an emergency. Calm down. I mean, if there's smoke filling the back of the cabin, I understand why you'd start to panic. But you, you know how to get away from smoke. Like, lean down in your seat, try to get something to cover your nose and mouth. Right. Which now... Super easy. You should already have a thing on that covers your nose and mouth. Yeah. Panicking doesn't do anything. Fighting also doesn't do anything. No, no, it doesn't. It's not going to make the fire go out, so... Also, for Correct. everyone who's like, the cabin crew should have been able to maintain control. There's how many cabin crew? Yeah. yeah there's a total of 14 crew on board. So there's the 11 three. cabin crew yeah. and 280-some passengers? Yeah, you have to imagine in the aft cabin, probably at least 50, maybe more. There's no way. Nope. There's no way. And you don't want to, like, get yourself hurt trying to fight them. 9.27 p.m. in 40 seconds, the captain stated that they must get down as soon as possible. So he's a little bit aware of how not great the situation is, but... Dire, but one not, might say. Yeah, but not, not, not entirely. Not entirely. The cabin crew then made an announcement over the PA system instructing everyone to sit down and remain calm and to clear the aisles. A minute later, the flight engineer asked the first officer if he had instructed that the fire trucks be at the rear of the airplane. Oh, my God. The first the officer... fire trucks. Yes. The first officer then made the call to the air traffic controllers, requesting that they be at the rear of the airplane when they get there. There was a lot of discussion back and forth between the air traffic controllers and the fire rescue crews as to the location of the fire and what to expect on the airplane. 9.29 p.m. and one second, another cabin crew member came into the cockpit to inform them that there, quote, is too much smoke in the back, end quote. Meanwhile, the captain did not respond to this because he was trying hard to locate the runway and runway lights out of the windows. At 9.29 p.m. and 34 seconds, the flight engineer said, quote, Okay, I'm going to test the system again, end quote. The sound of the smoke detector alarms filled the cockpit at that time, and the flight engineer stated, quote, Okay, there's both A and B loops working again, and no indication of smoke, end quote. So you can do basically what we call an enunciator test, where they test the systems, make sure that the circuits actually are still connected and working, because there didn't have any alarms at this moment. Both had been extinguished. So they're thinking, okay, maybe this isn't as bad as we think it is. So he tested the system and both the A and the B lit up, which means the circuits are still working. But they didn't go off? But they weren't going off because of smoke at the moment. Okay. So they're thinking, okay, maybe it's not as bad as they thought. The captain questioned this and the flight engineer told him that there was no indication of smoke according to the smoke detectors in the cargo areas, even though there was extensive smoke in the passenger cabin. Yeah, it doesn't matter if there's nothing in the cargo hold. If they keep saying, hey, there's a lot of smoke in the aft cabin, there's a lot of smoke in the aft cabin. Yeah, you can pretty easily go see for yourself. 9.29 p.m. and 56 seconds, the flight engineer suggested that they shut down the number two engine when they are on short final, and the captain agreed. So the number two engine is currently stuck. The oh, throttle oh, oh, is right, right, stuck. Right. And they've already decided they're going to shut it down. They're just trying to decide on when. Now they've decided they're going to do it when they're on short final, so that that's basically reducing power. Because okay. right now that engine's still producing power, which is fine. But eventually they're going to want to shut it down. But how are they going to so get the throttle unstuck if it's already stuck? That doesn't matter. They're not going to. They're just going to shut the engine down. Oh, so you don't need to go no. take nope. it back to idle to shut it down? Nope. You just oh, okay. cut the fuel and that's oh, it. Oh, all right. Okay. I mean, if you have a car that's running and the ignition's shot, you just cut the fuel line. Yep. Pretty Arcs. much. Three seconds later, there was another smoke detector warning, and the flight engineer stated, quote, there's A again, end quote. 9.30 p.m. and 41 seconds, the captain called for the final checklist for landing, while another PA announcement was being made by the cabin crew trying to calm the passengers. 
9.31 and 30 seconds, another cabin crew member entered the cockpit and asked the captain if they should evacuate. This is where things get really confusing. Uh, you shouldn't even be asking that, right? They're not even on the ground yet, right? They're just asking if... If when they... once they're on the ground, should they immediately evacuate? To which the captain responded, what? And the flight attendant repeated her question, and the captain replied, okay, which didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately after, the captain requested flaps 10 degrees and called for the last of the checklist items, because they weren't done yet. 9.32 p.m. and 10 seconds, the cabin crew member asked the captain again if he wanted them to evacuate the passengers, and he responded by telling her to take her position. So this doesn't really, in the in the story, it didn't really clarify how many times she actually asked, but she asked like six or seven times, and most of the time she was getting a what from the captain, and then what was the response one of the times? Was, yeah, what? Oh, yeah. When Once we're, we're on, on the, the ground. ground. Like, no, I'm just going to open the door right now. Just go we're for it. Let's go. Yeah. That, that was so helpful of them. It's a yes or no question. I think eventually he does say yes. Eventually. But we'll talk about this because I found out something even better. Nine seconds later, the flight engineer reported an area duct overheat condition. So their ducts are warm. Well, fire. Yes. I want you to take warm. note how late in the sequence of events that alarm goes off. Like they're basically almost on the ground at this yes. point, right? Yes, they're on approach. Recall okay. that later. Okay, I can do that. Okay. Because also, all of this happened quite a while ago. They've been up in the air for a while. At that moment, the captain called for flaps 18 degrees. 14 seconds later, they made a call to the air traffic controller. Quote, we got the runway in sight. Are we cleared to land? End quote. The air traffic controller replied, affirmative, you're number one for approach, and you can contact the tower 118.1. End quote. The crew acknowledged the handoff. After the switch, the tower cleared the flight to land. 9.32 p.m. and 52 seconds, the captain stated that he was shutting down the number two engine while the first officer was simultaneously acknowledging the clearance by air traffic controller and again asked the air traffic controller if they had alerted the fire trucks, which oh, they responded they had. And they had already told them God. that this has already happened. This was a, this has been a long time now. I would be so annoyed if I was that controller. I would be like, yes, okay. for the fifth time now. Yes, they know they're there. So, it, yeah, this just keeps happening. And we'll talk a lot more about that part later. 9.33 p.m. and 31 seconds, the captain requested gear down and then informed the first officer that the two engine landing procedure is the same as the three engine landing procedures which is not entirely true what yeah no. if they're two different procedures why would they be the same thing pretty much this just clarifies that they don't know everything about this airplane obviously we'll talk a lot about how much they don't know later oh great 9 34 p.m in two seconds the crew informed air traffic controller that they only had the number one and number three engines running as they were shutting down the number two engine the number two engine is the one in the tail yeah i figured so at least they're going to have symmetrical thrust that's yeah, not a problem. could be worse. Yep. 9.34 p.m. and 25 seconds. The captain requested that the flight engineer complete the final landing checklist, which he did so. 9.34 and 44 seconds. The flight engineer reported, quote, both loops A and B are out, end quote. Simultaneously, the cabin crew were again trying to calm the passengers of the PA system. So they just keep trying and trying and trying. 9.35 p.m. and 17 seconds. The flight engineer told the captain that the cabin crew wanted to know if they needed to evacuate. So now the flight engineer is asking. The captain did not respond and instead called for flaps 33 degrees. Oh my god. It really seems like he just does not want to make this decision. Just did not want to make it. It's a pretty important decision. And he's the captain. And the answer should be yes. <laughs> Please get off. There's a fire. You'll see how much he didn't want to make that decision in a moment. 9.35 p.m. and 25 seconds, there was another oral smoke warning, and the flight engineer stated, quote, there's A again, end quote. Immediately after, the 500-foot above oral tone played in the cockpit as the aircraft was on final approach. 
They call it the C tone because it's a C. Isn't it the? Oh, it's like the Bing. Yeah. It, Except it's. Is, are you saying it's C pitched? It was C pitched at the time. Hooray. It has since changed. They called it the C tone because of that. But they've. It's is since, it not a C anymore? No, it's five hundred. Yeah, I was gonna say, isn't it just a call out now? <laughs> it's a call out now. But at the time on the L ten eleven, it was a Bing. I don't. Or I, or or or. There you go. That's a C tone. I can so also that, hear. So that plays in the cockpit to tell them that they're 500 above. For those of you who are new, we are all musicians here. Yep. 500 feet above landing. 11 seconds later, the captain called, quote, hydraulic, end quote. The flight engineer replied that they had low pressure in the number two line. So something's happening with the number two engine. The number two line, hydraulic line. At least, or the, at least, something's happening with the number two Period. Yes, everything. Because the throttle got stuck (laughs) on the number two engine, and now the hydraulic line has low pressure. Yes. 21 seconds later, the captain stated, quote, tell them, tell them to not evacuate, end quote. Whoa, 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 why? Exactly. Why? No, seriously, I want to know why he's saying not to evacuate. That is never determined. There's a suspicion that it's because he doesn't shut off the engines immediately so he's like don't evacuate yet yes we'll, we'll, we'll talk about and it. then yeah you shouldn't do that while the engines are on yes. yeah but it's also a matter of like don't let people just open the door because they really wanted to anyways. so no don't evacuate yet let me shut down the engines okay starting at 9 36 p.m and 18 seconds the flight engineer made his required altitude call outs normally so starting from basically like 70 60 50 40. The aircraft landed on runway 01 at 9.36 p.m. and 24 seconds. Witnesses saw the back end of the airplane trailing smoke as it approached the airport. The aircraft continued its landing rollout before making a 180-degree turn at the end of the runway. At 9.39 p.m. and 3 seconds, the airplane finally came to a stop on the taxiway, which was 2 minutes and 40 seconds after touchdown. They could have stopped the airplane immediately, and they didn't. He they kept, could have stopped it in 40 seconds. He kept rolling. Why? He just kept rolling very, very slowly, and the fire trucks just kept following him everywhere he went. Why? Good question. No one knows? Nope. While they had been taxiing, the crew asked the air traffic controller if they could see any fire, and the air traffic controller talked with the fire crews on the ground, and they reported that they did not see any fire on the external of the airplane at the time, and the crew acknowledged this. So that's part of why they may have been taxiing, is because they're like, okay, we're not just completely on fire back there. So let's see if we can get somewhere. But there's already smoke in the cabin. Yes, you're right. Like, yes, stop. yes, yes, you're, yes, yes, yes. You're, you're right. <laughs> you're caught. Like, it could be underneath the floor, and the floor could collapse. The back of the plane could start catching on fire. Like, there's so many bad things that could happen with an in-cabin fire. You're not wrong on any of these Why? <laughs> Why are you just, like, keep going? Like, I don't understand this at all. Like... It's- it's this at this point that I would <sighs> like to insert Bob's comment of, honestly, why would you need to hurry when evacuating a burning plane? We'll just taxi for another few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> 9.39 p.m. in six seconds, the air traffic controller asked the flight if they wanted to continue to the ramp or shut down where they were. And they replied, quote, standby. And then immediately stated, quote, okay, we are shutting down the engines now and evacuating, end quote. During this time, there were also communications between the air traffic controller and the fire crews that the fire was increasing at the rear, so the fire crews could now see the fire. And the fire crews asked the air traffic controller to have the airplane shut down their engines, since the flight and the fire crews were not communicating to the air traffic controller on the same frequency. So they couldn't hear each other. Oh, that's not The flight great. and the fire crews weren't talking to one another, but they were both talking to the air traffic controller. 
Um, so he had to play middleman. Yeah, I was like, why have a middleman when you can just talk straight to them? The air, it's, it was supposed to be the air traffic controller's responsibility to set them up on the same frequency, and he never did. Oh, well. He got boo-booed for that. Yeah, but, he did I get mean, it was like a paragraph. Yeah, that was it. He did get boo-booed for that, but that was minor. It didn't really contribute to anything anyways. 9.40 p.m. and 33 seconds, the air traffic controller told the flight that they have a fire in the tail. The flight crew responded, quote, affirmative, we are trying to evacuate now, end quote. All this time, the engines are still running. This was the last time that the flight crew would ever be heard from. Wait, 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 wait. So now the fire is visible on the outside of the aircraft. Yes. And they still haven't shut down the engines. No. Correct. More conversations occurred between the air traffic controller and the fire crews. The engines were finally shut down at 9.42 p.m. and 18 seconds, which was three minutes and 15 seconds after they had come to a stop on the taxiway. The fire crews struggled to access the aircraft for some time before the two right door, the two R door, was finally opened at 10.05 p.m., 23 minutes after the engines had been shut down. What? A witness had watched them struggle with the forward left and then the forward right doors before getting to the two right door, which they opened and a firefighter called into the smoke and fire-filled cabin, but did not enter and nobody came out. A few moments later, flames were observed shooting out of the door. Oh, no. At 10.08 p.m., the fire crews reported seeing the cabin engulfed in flames, and the top of the airplane was being breached by the flames from the rear forward. So that captain burned everybody alive because of his actions then? The fire trucks attempted to douse the flames with their fire retardant foam and water, but the flames were too strong, and they enveloped the entire top half of the fuselage, including the cockpit. The cabin floor at the rear of the aircraft collapsed into the aft cargo area as the flames progressed. Did I not just say that that was a possibility? All 301 on board perished in the accident, making this the worst L-1011 accident in history. What the actual f***? Another two people were minorly injured, and all I can assume is that they were fire crews, but they didn't say. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. I mean, it completely burned. I don't, honestly... I don't understand why they didn't shut... Shutting down the engine doesn't take very long. No. So why the hell did they not shut them down immediately? We'll talk about it. Great. I will talk about it right now. Great. So here's a new one for us. This investigation was performed by the Presidency of Civil Aviation of Saudi Arabia. However, he had a lot of help from the NTSB. With the assistance of the NTSB. <laughs> Sorry. Ah, okay. <laughs> I'll hold my tongue. <laughs> from the United States, as well as the AIB from the United Kingdom. Mm. Both of which we've talked about a lot. Both black boxes were recovered, mm. as well as the quick access recorder from the front of the aircraft. Hence, I have second times. If you can, if if you ever hear me start talking about things in seconds, you know we have <laughs> at least one of the two, the CVR oh, or the FDR. Makes, I yeah. guess that makes sense. And the CVR was sent to the NTSB lab in the United States for analysis after a copy was made to keep in Riyadh. Because they like to do those kinds of things. Whatever. Because the data from the cockpit has to be sent to the back of the plane to the black boxes... And uh, um, both had their cabling cut by fire. So the cockpit voice recorder stopped recording just before touchdown, right after the flight engineer called out 30, as in 30 feet AGL. Oh. And the flight data recorder stopped recording just a few seconds after touchdown. On the other hand, the quick access recorder was able to keep recording until it was shut off at the same time as the rotating beacon about two minutes after touchdown. That's an odd one. I thought so, too. Why tie it to the rotating beacon? Dude, Anyways. I don't know. Whatever. 
for reference, because I guess we haven't talked about this in a while, the quick access recorder exists so that maintenance and such can look at previous flight data to diagnose certain problems without having to just remove an entire black box. And at the time, this was one of the most revolutionary things in aviation because this airplane really was one of the most advanced for its time, and quick access recorders really didn't exist much yet. This was one of the first major... I think this is the earliest chronologically that we've ever talked about yes probably but this is one of the uh first mass manufactured airliners to have the quick access recorder it became pretty standard from there but and it's good that they had it because that's all they had after touchdown basically yeah didn't tell them a whole lot though as always one of the first suspicions was sabotage they actually brought in an aircraft sabotage expert i didn't know that was a thing they had those yeah i was like what (laughs) i didn't know that was a thing you could do to aid in the as- in this aspect of the investigation, he, he, they, person, they, began investigating the contents of the C-3 cargo hold where the fire had seemed to have been originated around, they didn't know exactly where yet, but found no damage evident from the detonation of an explosive or incendiary device. There was a 4-liter can of Caltex diesel engine lubricating oil, but it was just covered in soot and neither it nor its contents caught fire. The sabotage specialist found no evidence of criminal activity. During that investigation, they also found that a hydraulic line full of flammable hydraulic fluid had been compromised. However, it was found that for a non-missed quantity of hydraulic fluid to become flammable, it first had to be heated to 350 degrees, which is not the case in normal operation, and the break in the line would not have led to a mist, so that was not the cause of it either. Well, that's all that came from that miniature investigation. Let's start the real accident analysis. There were four probable origin locations for the fire, and rather than try to differentiate different fire damage as having occurred before or after another, investigators took a different approach, which I kind of liked, actually. They decided to sort of simulate or guess what would have happened if a fire started here or there, and what would have failed in what order, and see what most closely matched the data from the recorders. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. To a good extent. The first possible location was the passenger cabin. And it was discounted pretty quickly, as you might imagine. A fire was not reported in the cabin until five minutes after the smoke detector went off, and it would be really hard to do that and not report it. There were two passengers with butane stoves. (laughs) What? For making tea. What a weird thing to take with you. And so they suspected that one of them, because somebody had witnessed one of these people using a butane stove to make tea at their seat. Wait, they were using it? Yeah. (laughs) What? Somebody had witnessed them and thought, so there was an initial thought that maybe it came from this butane stove? No. It didn't. It didn't. That's why I left it out. I just thought that was a fun, weird thing. But what? what, That's not allowed anymore. Who allows you to take a a butane stove on a plane? Things that are definitely heavily, heavily not allowed on any airplane anywhere in the world anymore. Anyway, back to my script. It's like having a camping stove at your seat. I'm sorry, that's just so freaking weird. It would take a huge fire to penetrate from the cabin down into the cargo compartment to set off that smoke alarm, and that simply didn't match the reports of just smoke in the cabin. Such a fire also would have had a hard time damaging the throttle cable, which we know happened. Because the throttle got stuck. Yep. Also, the duct overheat signal went off, which was more than 12 inches under the floor and would have been protected for a prolonged amount of time. And lastly, and not great, if the fire had started in the cabin, it would have burned through the flammable seats in a much quicker manner than what all the data and reports reflected. And yes, the seats were flammable. So basically, because the fire wasn't faster, they knew it didn't start in the cabin? Okay, so it probably started in the cargo compartment is what you're saying. Well, there's more. 
Oh, okay. The next possible location was the cheek area next to the cargo compartment. The f- is the yes, cheek area. That's almost what I said. <laughs> now, if you're like me, you heard that and wondered what the actual f- that is. Thanks, Moran. You're welcome. <laughs> I the the report did not provide any explanation. So Google is a wonderful tool. Yeah. And revealed that it is the space between the vertical walls of the cargo compartment and the rounded skin of the fuselage. Oh, okay. Kind of like how the cheek of your mouth is the area between your vertical teeth and the rounded skin. Well, that's like where all the electronics and like insulation and stuff goes. Good, you already know that. Correct. Now that we know the area we're talking about, let's discuss why the fire did not start there. For one, the walls of the cargo compartment would not have allowed smoke to enter from the cheek to activate the smoke alarm in the C3 cargo compartment. There's also not a lot in that section of the fuselage that's, like, good fuel for flammable. a fire. Flammable, yeah. There's stuff that's flammable, but there's not stuff that's, like, good kindling. Yeah. I hate that. I'm so sorry. If there's no fuel for the fire, there's no fire. Also, a fire in that section would ha- wouldn't have been able to compromise the throttle cable. Now, if a fire had started there, the duct overheat signal definitely would have gone off. However, it would have happened pretty quickly. So not as delayed as it was. Nope. What else runs through the cheek? Wires. Lots of wires. I was going to say, is it an arcing or a short or something like that? I present to you again with a however. However, a fire in the cheek would have caused intense damage to the wire harness in about five minutes, whereas the FDR shows a damage like that occurring in more like 21 minutes. So as, not really. Yeah. As reflected by the C1 cargo door open warning, which happened, there was no pre-flight damage to the wires that would have caused a spark to start the fire in the first place. Oh, okay. So that's out. Location three, the area immediately aft of the C3 cargo compartment. Once again, this would have set off the duct overheat alarm way earlier in the flight. A fire there also wouldn't have caused the extensive fire damage in the C3 compartment. And lastly, if a fire had started there, it would have gone directly upwards toward the lavatory. And there was no evidence of that being the case. So it's in the cargo Good job. compartment. Yep. Well, what supports that theory? The area above that area of the cargo compartment is the cabin, right? Well, there's actually about an 8-inch section between the two, between the cargo ceiling and the passenger floor. That That has to be. Yep. That 8-inch space is connected to the cabin sidewall exhaust grill. If the fire had penetrated the cargo ceiling, it would have allowed smoke to enter the cabin. There you go. There you go. Ten minutes after the first smoke alarm, the captain reported that the number two throttle was stuck, which would happen if the cable was damaged. Any guesses where that cable runs? Uh, right there? Yep. Yep. So, I didn't write this in my script, and it actually becomes a little bit sort of relevant later. The only way that cable would become stuck is if it became super hot and then cooled down. So, it froze in place. Yeah, and it's determined that because oxygen supply was kind of fluid at some point the fire became cooler and allowed the throttle cable to become stuck oh okay all right so that was a weird little thing i didn't write that in one minute later the flight attendant reported fire on the left side of the cabin why not the floor it makes sense because the fire followed the same path as the smoke up into the sidewall because that's where oxygen was flowing since it was you know part of the ventilation system yeah six minutes later the duct overheat signal went off All the other locations would have set it off much sooner, but if the fire started in the cargo compartment, it would have taken time to get to this point. Nine minutes later, the crew started getting tons of erroneous alarms as the wire harness began being damaged by fire. And to further support this theory, there was a long history of fires in this compartment. And other symptoms from those fires matched this one. 
For example, ease of penetration of the ceiling liner from below and evidence of fire from C-32 cabin. Fluctuation of the smoke detection signals. Long duration of a fire before cabin hazard levels significantly increased. And temperature in the 8-inch area peaked just after the liner burned through and then decreased, which might cause a throttle to stick. Mm. Now for the part I've been waiting for. The Miranda Rage. Like I, I wasn't already angry. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, I predict a moderate rage level, but we shall see. Saudi Airlines procedure say that once you have either a single or a double smoke warning, you should at least consider diverting to the nearest airport. Consider? Yes. How about divert? Hold on. However, this particular flight instead spent four minutes and 21 seconds trying to figure out if this was a spurious error. And they were still climbing. Basically, they didn't know if it was a false alarm or not, and they spent four minutes and 21 seconds trying to figure that out. Wasn't there already, like, smoke in the cabin at that point? No. Not yet? No. No. Now, they have gotten false warnings from this particular system before, but there are ways to confirm whether or not it is a false alarm. So why exactly did this take four minutes and 21 seconds? It seems that three whole minutes were spent by the crew looking for the specific cargo smoke warning procedure. Three minutes. Investigators attribute this in part to the flight engineer having dyslexia. Oh. Which I understand to an extent, but I have a hard time believing it was that big of an issue to take three minutes to find a checklist. Also, he wasn't, he should not have been the only person looking for that checklist. No. Correct. Investigators go on to recommend creating an index section of the checklist, very similar to the quick reference handbook, so that looking for such an emergency checklist would not be such an issue in the future. Yeah, that would be helpful. You know, so people know where to look for emergencies. So there were also three separate sections of checklists. There was emergency, abnormal, and additional. That's helpful. Yeah. So the crew thought it was in the abnormal section. Turns out it was in the emergency section. I feel like that's a no-duh moment, but I understand why they would also look in the abnormal. Yeah. My thought would be look in the emergency first and then the abnormal, but I would understand why they would... In any case, just have an index. Yeah. Just like be like, you're looking for a fire thing? Here, go here. <laughs> now, if you look at any quick reference handbook, which we happen to have several, uh, there's a table of contents. Yes. Very handy. Which I feel like it should have already had a table of contents, and the fact that it didn't is concerning. Yes. What else contributed to the poor cockpit atmosphere? Well, the captain decided to take it entirely upon himself to fly the plane and help diagnose the situation rather than delegating any responsibilities to the first officer. And just to exacerbate this, the first officer did not put himself forward in order to alleviate some of the workload from the captain. Now, I do understand that this is kind of prior to the dawn of crew resource management. It was in the midst of being developed, and captain's word at this point was still kind of law. And many of those who defend the first officer say he wasn't experienced enough to have that kind of tenacity to insert himself into the situation. Okay, but listen, okay? When you have a crew member asking multiple times if you're going to evacuate, that's where you step in. At least talk to the captain. Be like, we need to give them an answer. Yeah. You cannot keep ignoring this question. Are they going to evacuate or are they not going to evacuate? So the investigators agree with you and say that a lack of experience is not an excuse for the inaction on the part of the first officer. You are in an emergency. You have an onboard fire. Are you kidding me? No. Yep, you need right. it. Even, even the flight engineer, not even just the first officer, but also the flight engineer yeah. should have stepped in way before and been like, okay, even if captain's word was law, which I understand it was different at this point in time, but just be like, what are we doing? Because we need to know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. This situation was further worsened 
by the fact that the flight engineer kept saying, no problem, when a severe problem was in fact the case. Uh, yeah. I didn't throw that in there anywhere because they didn't in the story, but he kept saying probably about 40 or 50 times throughout no this problem. entire thing. No problem. There's a big problem. Enormous problem. When there problem. is smoke and you don't know where it's coming from, big problem. Enormous. This may have lulled the rest of the flight crew into the sense that the severe problem on their hands wasn't as bad as it looked like when in fact it was worse. Through all this time in the air, the cabin crew, on the other hand, acted commendably. They did everything they were supposed to do and worked hard to eventually extract cru- the crucial order of, yes, we should indeed evacuate from the captain. And now we're back to more poor decisions. The captain decides to continue taxiing the plane two minutes past when investigators proved the plane could have been stopped. This was two valuable minutes of potential evacuation time that was never able to be taken advantage of. This is one of the suspected reasons why the R2 door was never even attempted to be opened. Doors 3 and 4 on both sides were in areas of extreme fire and no bodies were found that far aft. So why didn't the cabin crew just open the doors anyway? There are many reasons. One, they were told not to. Yeah. Hi, Mary. Because the stupid captain... I'm sorry, I realize we, we've said this before. He's a pilot. He's not... No, he's being really stupid in this instance. Come on. You cannot disagree with me here. Nope. Bad Even decisions. being a person who does not fly planes... That is a stupid decision. Shut down the engines, get the people off the plane. Yes. The next reason. There were so many people that the plug-style doors couldn't actuate the few inches inward first before ascending to open the doorway. That's how these doors worked. They did not open outward first. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's kind of like one of those hydraulic ones where you have to pull and then they open. Yeah, so they suspect that there were so many people just... Well, and they probably bottlenecked, like we talked about a few weeks ago, where everyone tried to push toward the front of the aircraft because the the fire was in the aft, right? Trying to get out. But because they did that, and they were probably plugging up the galley in the aisleway, there's no way for them to open the door. I'm glad you found a way to equate this to British Air Tours, because I couldn't find a specific point other than that this entire thing felt very British Air Tours-y. But it was the only accident that was also referenced on the wikipedia page for yep. this because it's so well, similar the evacuation on that one was horrible too uh-huh. yes well, it's this very ev- similar this evacuation was non-existent it was very similar they burned on the ground and so that one was five years later yep reason number three there was a flash fire now this is different from the flash over phenomenon that we discussed with air canada flight 797 a flash over is a very hot fire that burns everything in its path and is completely dreaded by firefighters like they have chance so that they can recognize the signs of an impending flashover a flash fire is not as deadly in terms of burns normal clothing in fact shows protective qualities from flash fires why is it so dangerous it uses up all the available oxygen so people suffocate yep. almost immediately this would explain easily the complete lack of action from anyone in the cabin and why over 300 people died so quickly The flash fire occurred when the flight engineer shut down the air conditioning units while the outflow valves were closed, allowing heat and combustible gases to accumulate in an enclosed space. Now, the fires that Nick mentioned um, that happened when the firefighter opened the door, that would have been a flashover or something similar. But everyone was already dead, so there's that. Investigators deem that this accident could have been survivable. 100% survivable. If it weren't for the captain's lack of crew ca- of cabin crew preparation for evacuation, as well as not stopping as soon as possible on the runway, as well as the actions of the crash fire rescue personnel. What? Yeah. What of their actions made this unsurvivable? Well, I bet you'll tell me. 
This quote elevates my prediction for moderate rage warning to high. Quote, the firemen were not properly clothed in protective clothing, although they had ample warning that an aircraft on fire was approaching. They were not equipped with the tools for forcible entry, nor were they trained in forcible entry procedures. They were not trained in opening the L-1011 doors and were not knowledgeable of any entry areas below the cabin doors. They had not received actual firefighting training nor actual training on L-1011 aircraft, end quote. Why the f*** are they firefighters then? What's the point of you even being there? No. Excuse me? Not one of them was a trained firefighter. What the f***? I was going to say, why didn't they try to get the doors open earlier? They had multiple occasions where they kept saying, are the firefighters there? Are the firefighters there? Fun fact, there's no firefighters because they don't know how to get on the aircraft. This went as far as when they were trying to get in, there was a witness, which we'll talk about this witness in a moment because this is weird. But anyways, this witness saw them going and checking the front left and then the front right door. The front left door didn't open. And they, they didn't have, like, crowbars or anything to force it open? They couldn't figure out how to, like, get the door open or use the handle or anything. The front right door, they couldn't see the handle, so they didn't know it was there because it's a different style of door. They couldn't see the handle because of their own firefighting foam, so they didn't even know where the handle was, so they just gave up on that. The entire time, they're also not wearing fire protective clothing. Which, like, Woo! why the hell would you do that? They had ample time. And then you wonder why two of them got injured. This witness, by the way, was on the road, saw the airplane coming... I mean, he was just a person driving on the road, saw the airplane coming and trailing smoke going to the airport, saw the fire trucks, so he turned and followed it down the runway because there was no fences. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) He followed it down the runway and he parked on the taxiway beside all the fire trucks and watched all this go down. But this is still like, it's like, what, what, what? I read that in the report and seriously, he just drove right down the runway after them with all the fire trucks. So my ears hurt now. Yeah. Sorry. Are you? No. No. (laughs) <laughs> I have one more little tiny aspect, and by tiny, I mean what? Quote, review of the background of the cockpit crew raises some areas of concern. Both the first officer and flight engineer had, at one point in their careers, been dropped from the training program or had been terminated and then reinstated. Their crew, their actions, or lack of action during this accident sequence were not helpful to the captain. Reinstatement in a flight position of terminated crewmen is not desirable. End quote. We watched a little short bit on this accident, and they explained in there that the first officer had failed a test at one point along his Oh, hold on. It's on the Wikipedia page and the captain had had constant problems in his training no you you don't say i'm gonna read the way they acted you were never know that that was the case so i'm gonna read this from the wikipedia page which does have a citation and i don't have it so bear with me quote the captain's record (laughs) described him as a slow learner and needing more proper training he had Okay, that was his hours. The first officer joined the airline in 1977 and had previously worked as a trainee. He received his type rating 11 days before the accident. At one point during his training, however, due to poor performance, he was removed from flying school. The flight engineer was an American who had been hired by the airline in 1974. He had been qualified as a captain on the DC-3 and was then assigned to train in either the Boeing 707 or 737, but failed to qualify as captain nor as first officer because he did not meet the requirements. He had needed to pay for his own training as an L-1011 flight engineer to keep his job, end quote. So he did. So n- none of them should have been in the cockpit, is no. what you're telling me. The, okay, to be fair, the Maybe flight Maybe the en- captain. The, well, the flight engineer was probably the most... 
qualified person there. It's not like he was... He didn't show any problems with his actual training as a flight engineer. He was fine as a flight engineer. As the airline goes... As far as the airline goes, they didn't do a very good job of crew resource management training. And so Which was he, non-existent at this time. He was doing the best he could actually as a flight engineer, um, knowing what he knew. But he didn't have crew resource management training. So he didn't... He couldn't do the crew resource management portions of his job in that situation. Meanwhile, the other two just had training problems, period. I just, I mean, we've talked about this before. Welcome back to the constantly talking about CRM podcast, but... That too. Well, and not just that, but like lack of training. Like, why are you letting them fly with so little hours... And why are you letting them fly together with so few hours? Yes. And having all these issues, and you know they're having all these issues. Like, I don't I don't get it. Like, to be fair, I realized this was 1980. I realized that it was a different world. I realized that. And it's Saudi Arabia. I get that. But, I mean, that having these pilots have so many issues and so little hours would have put a huge red flag on my radar. Because then you're sacrificing safety. And, of course, this has changed since then. Obviously. Yes. Now there's, like, international standards for minimum hours and things like that, so... So, yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of levels to the things that went wrong here. It's not... You can't just blame the crew, because obviously there was firefighting problems, there was training problems at the there's airline. There's a whole host of problems. There's a whole host of problems. I'm not very happy because though you say it's not 100% the crew's problem, sure, but... They were a huge contributor. They were absolutely an enormous contributor. They knew how to shut off an engine because they shut off the number two engine. Correct. So why did they wait so long to shut off the number one and number three engines? Why did they wait so long to stop? Why did they think it wasn't a big issue? And we will never know. Just like we will never know what exactly started the fire. And they literally... These people burned alive, which, yes. by the way, is the one of the worst ways to die. Absolutely. It's very painful, and it's slow, because you're also suffocating to death. Well, I will say that everyone on board died of smoke inhalation or suffocation. No one died of burns. Okay, well, that's good. They eventually. They yeah. eventually burned, but that was not cause of death. All of them had massive amounts of toxic crap in their lungs, probably similar to British air tours. I was going to ask if they had any... Uh, toxic gases from stuff being burned but there was definitely soot and other chemicals but i'm assuming that the chemical analysis available in Riyadh was not the same level to which was available for the british air tours there were significantly less problems with this airplane burning like there was a lot less materials that were toxic they even determined did you say that the carpet was oh yeah so they were testing various parts of the aircraft to figure out what was super flammable, what would have propagated a fire. And they spit, like they intentionally spilled flammable substances on the carpet and it self-extinguished. Like the carpets were self-extinguishing, Good on basically. Lockheed, then. They picked the right stuff. Yeah. So. But I, I just, it surprises me. Like, also because they died, too. Like, wouldn't you want to get off the aircraft? I wonder, now that I'm thinking about it, there's a fire. Fire yeah. eats oxygen. What do you get when you don't have oxygen? Hypoxia. Hypoxia, oh, yeah. Oh, maybe. I don't know. And really, we'll never know because there's no cockpit voice recording after that. So we'll never and know the true intentions, any of that. But I also just said earlier, and I don't know if you heard it, we don't know what started the fire. We don't. We only know where. And My guess is something exploded in the cargo hold. The other Regulations were so non-existent on cargo, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the other weird 
thing about this is the fact that they stopped communicating with the air traffic controllers, I think it was almost two minutes before they actually shut the engines down. So, I mean, the firefighters are just standing there, like, talking to the air traffic controllers, like, please have them shut down the engines. And they kept, the air traffic controller kept sending messages to the the flight crew saying, shut your engines down, shut your engines down, shut your engines down. I wonder and they if... never weren't responding. And then suddenly the engines just stopped. I wonder if the fire burned through cabling for the radio. I don't know. It could be, but even then, it seems strange. And It all just seems strange. I didn't bring this up. I guess it's relevant now that we've made this hypothesis about hypoxia. No one used any oxygen masks. Nope. On not, I mean, that's probably pretty dangerous. To neither be fair. the cockpit, neither the cabin, neither the cabin crew. No one. No one used oxygen. And it was available. Well, I feel like you wouldn't know. Like, I, I didn't know that when you have a fire and it's that bad, you wouldn't know that you would eventually die of suffocation and smoke yeah. inhalation. Like, maybe smoke inhalation, but not suffocation. Like, you wouldn't know that all the oxygen would be taken up by the fire, right? Yeah. So, I feel like that was probably something that they just didn't think about using because they just didn't know. But I wonder how much of an effect it was. It might have been. And again, we don't know. It kind of just, I'm still kind of just pissed off about how lackadaisical the captain was and how lackadaisical both the first officer and the flight engineer were. Even though the flight engineer went back twice and saw smoke. Like I, This yep. entire thing was extremely aggravating. It's very frustrating. And after the break, we'll get into why this won't happen again. Yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so as I was saying while we took our very short break, I, I kind of am pissed off about the firefighting. And obviously you guys heard that with the amount of bleeps in it. I don't understand what was the point of having firefighters there when they can't go in and help anybody. Now, the specific word choice for that specific phrase kind of leaves it up in the air whether or not they had any firefighter training at all. I think what they were trying to say was they just didn't have any training on the L-1011 in particular, which, by the way, the ICAO mandates that any aircraft you can service as a firefighter you should be trained on. Yes. And they weren't, so they were in violation of the ICAO or the ICAO. The ICAO. Oh, I hate that. Don't. Yeah. ICAO. Don't do the ICAO. IATA? No, thanks. Ugh. Okay. But but my other problem is is if you were trained as a firefighter, why didn't you have protective clothing? Why didn't you know how to open the door? Why they, don't you have crowbars and axes? Why I mean anyone can point a hose, right? They were set up to fail. Yeah. It's not their fault in particular. If it's they whoever were trained, set that's them not up. their fault. Yeah. It's, it's, it's whoever set them yeah. up with this job. I mean, they they weren't set up with the right tools, the right equipment, and the right training. They just didn't have it. They did not have it. Somebody did not provide it to them. They were unwilling. Yeah. We'll talk about it, but that changed right away, actually. That changed long before the report came out. Okay, well, That findings. said, we're going to go into findings. These are really short, concise findings, so I kind of like these. Thank we'll be able God. To, we'll be able to whip through these real quick, and we're not doing all of them. There were a total of 20 of them, and we're not doing 20. all of those. Thank yeah. God for the Saudi brevity. Is I that, guess. Is that what they're known yes. for? Well, because the NTSB and the AIB. Time one ease. 
We need a yeah. discussion. Oh, yeah. No, thank you. No I thanks. Need Taiwanese report. No oh, thanks. Oh God. Who needs seven hundred pages to tell me about one thing went wrong? Okay. Uh, the Taiwanese. <laughs> yeah. Refer to episode seven with seven hundred pages of a report. Sorry. So the first one, the first finding, I almost left in here because it's the normal one. Oh, everything's fine. The crew were properly certified. <laughs> and I almost felt like were this they? was untrue. Were they? I. Anyways. By their standards at the time? Sure. Sure. Today? Pretty oh. much all they could prove is like, yep, they were trained to the standards provided to them. Moving on. They found that a fire probably started in the C3 cargo compartment. That's, that's the entire finding. Yep. Most of these are just like that. They found that the fire did not start in the cabin area. They found that the fire did not start in the left cheek area. So it was the left side. They found that the majority of the evidence indicates that the fire did not start in the area aft of the C3 cargo compartment, so it didn't start in the engine or the rear bulkhead. Well, it says the majority. Yes. There is some evidence that it may have started there, but probably it was in the cargo compartment. They found that the ignition source for the fire was not determined. They don't know what started the fire. They never will. I'm sure it was, like we said, just It's probably burned to bits. Something exploded or like a battery or something. Who knows? And at the time, they didn't have cargo manifests, at least not to the same degree that they do today. Correct. They found that the initial fuel for the fire was probably baggage and cargo in the C3 cargo compartment. They found that the operator's emergency and abnormal checklist procedures were not adequately indexed for rapid identification. Table of contents. Yep, just would have been really helpful. They found that during the descent to Riyadh, the captain did not brief the cabin crew regarding plans to evacuate. This ultimately is the number one failure in survivability. Correct. Yeah. He just kept glancing over that entirely. They asked him six or seven times, are we evacuating? And one answer was okay, and then the the rest of them did not exist. He did not answer this question. He would not even give it a second thought at all. He just didn't want to answer that question. Which <sighs> is dumbfounding. It's, it's like, yes. why are you even a captain? If yes. you can't make that decision, why are you even a captain? And we didn't talk about this, but while all of this was going on, he was singing. Oh, I forgot about What? That. He was singing in Arabic. If you read the cockpit voice recorder transcript, which is linked on the Wikipedia page at the very bottom, he was humming and singing in Arabic. The whole time. I completely forgot that. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah. I didn't throw it in the story because I didn't even mention it. But yeah, he was singing in Arabic. I mean, he was mostly like humming to himself, but this was audible on the what, CVR. you think it was lackadaisical? Apparently. This is you how much- You think this is a joke? This is how much he was not paying attention to this like need to evacuate or how serious the Your situation was. Your life is in danger and every passenger's board on board's life is in danger he and did, you just- He- he managed to get this airplane on the ground, and he made that a priority, and okay, great. But then he did nothing else to help the survivability. Nothing. Sorry, but he did nothing. You mad, bro? Moving on. They found that toxic fumes, including carbon monoxide, were being produced by burning materials and were inhaled by the aircraft occupants. Needless to say. I would like to input here that I suspect it was way more than that. Yes. But they did not have the chemical analysis capabilities that were present for British air tours and Five years later. revolutionized the industry. Yep. We didn't know the seats were flammable, and that was in British air tours, too. So They found that there was no evidence of an attempt to open the doors from the inside the aircraft by the emergency method. So they didn't have any... They didn't prove this or, or anything, but basically everything they could tell... Nobody tried to open any of the doors. I was going to say, so even if, they were, the even if they were bottlenecked at the front of the cabin, right? 
Mm-hmm. They still have overwing exits, right? Or am I wrong in in thinking that? So, I don't know about this L1011. I'd have to I'm, look. I'm gonna look real quick. I don't think they do. I don't think any of the L1011s do. I think they're all forward and after the wings. So there were four total doors on each side. And yeah. So this was they were all two forward, two rear of which, the wing. Uh, yeah, obviously, they changed. So all four doors for three and four were not usable. Well, there's a door. So there's. Three doors on each side, then. No, there's different. No, there's four doors. No, because there's one door. There's two different kinds of L1011. Oh, I don't one know. One L1011 has two doors rear of the wing. So this one that I'm looking at is a, a Delta. It's on. I, I just looked up L1011. Mm-hmm. There's a door over the wing. There's a door in the front of the cabin. And there's a door at the back of the cabin. Like, what do you know what version this would be? Like This was also- an L1011-200. This still shows me that there's a... A there's two okay. doors aft, but there's also yes. two doors in front. Yes. Yes. So anyone can will probably have a picture of this up, but you can also Google an L ten eleven two hundred. There are two doors very much at the back of the cabin. I can only see Which are tiny by the way. If you've never looked at these, these the ones at the very, very back of the cabin are about that wide. I can only see like seven or eight windows between those two doors. So they're pretty close to each other yes. on each side. All four of those doors in the aft part of the plane were not usable. All of... Obviously. Yes. All of the passengers and crew were forward, I think even of the wing. It did shift the center of gravity for record. So now that leaves you with the two doors just in the front of the wing and the two doors at the front of the cabin. The R2 door, there was no evidence that anyone tried to open it. That I didn't see anything that said anything about any of the other doors, but from what you just said in the finding, there was no evidence that they tried to open those doors using the emergency method. They right. probably tried to use the conventional method on the front doors. Which is yes. you push in and, and it opens out, right? Well, These I doors assume, do not open out. No, they pull in. And then they slide up. But I'm assuming... In the cabin. I'm assuming... Oh! These are not a common door type anymore because no. of the issues they have with the people. Obviously. Because it comes inward. Which is why they weren't able to open them as there were so many people shoved against the doors they couldn't pull it inside in order to lift it up well and i would say that read your safety card right obviously but i don't know if at this point safety cards had the emergency information in them for passengers to be able to open doors i don't know i i honestly don't if you know that answer Please I let think, us know. I think they probably relied uh, a bit on the cabin crew. cabin crew knowing how to use the emergency. Who were told not to open them. Right. By the flight crew. And everyone, I mean, at this point, there's probably symptoms of hypoxia because there is limited oxygen. Well, and of course you'd bottleneck yourself at the front of the airplane. The back of the airplane's on fire. Yes, that's exactly like, right. Like, I, I, I 100% understand the reason why they couldn't get out. But if the captain had stopped and... Two shut minutes down, prior before And shut did. down the engines immediately, they probably would have been able to get out. Right. Just saying. Two more findings. We found that crash fire and rescue personnel were not properly equipped or trained. This resulted in their actions no. being inadequate and disorganized for the situation at hand. They found that the degree of seriousness of the accident is directly related to the actions of the captain and the crash, fire, and rescue services. No. Amen. I completely back that. Yes. So, the probable cause verbatim from the report, as always. The Presidency of Civil Aviation determines that the probable cause of this accident was the initiation of fire in the C-3 cargo compartment. The source of the ignition of the fire is undetermined. 
factors contributing to the final fatal results of this accident were 1. The failure of the captain to prepare the cabin crew for immediate evacuation upon landing and his failure in not making a maximum stop landing on the runway with immediate evacuation. 2. The failure of the captain to properly utilize his flight crew throughout the emergency, which is their way of saying a uh, crew resource management. Crew resource management. Serum, serum, serum. 3. The failure of CFR or crash, fire, and rescue headquarters management personnel to ensure that its personnel had adequate equipment and training to function as required during an emergency. So again, they did not blame the personnel themselves. Just the department. The overlords. Yes. The overlords. <laughs> well, to be fair, if you're not trained properly, you're not it's going not to act fault. properly. Yeah. It's yeah. not no, your no, fault. No, you don't not. know. Right? If you if you go to a new job and you're not trained properly and then someone yells at you for not doing your job right and you go, well, I didn't know. There was no way for me to know. Yeah. Sorry. So now on to some recommendations. I picked and chose a few of these as well that we're going to do. So we're going to go through the ones that they recommend directly in this report. And then there was two that the NTSB gave as a whole, which we'll do those afterwards. Yes, the NTSB made recommendations. Also, they're they're good at that. They're kind of included in here, but we'll, we'll talk about it. They recommend revising existing training programs and initiating additional programs to ensure that flight crews are given adequate instruction for their immediate and aggressive response to any problems relative to safety of flight. Such programs should include instructions for immediate action to be taken upon activation of any aircraft's fire and smoke warning devices and or upon receipt of any information that fire or smoke has been observed aboard an aircraft. If smoke is confirmed, the instructions should dictate a landing as soon as possible at a suitable airfield. This is absolutely in place this these days. This is an emergency! Anytime there's any, any indication of smoke in a cabin anymore, they immediately land. Any airplane will immediately find the first place to land. That's the well, rule of thumb in aviation. Yeah, because if you don't, you potentially, the longer you wait, like in you this accident. You endanger everyone. Let's Everybody. Say, four minutes and 21 seconds right from the get-go. That should have been the first sign that they were not going to react to this correctly. And I, I don't mean to discount dyslexia, but I really don't think it was as big of a problem as they said it was. Dyslexia wasn't really ultimately the problem here. Yes, maybe he didn't do the right thing in the report, but even then, the captain decided to spend four minutes and 21 seconds worth of time not descending. Well, and he's not the only one looking no. at for the checklist. My problem is, is yes, the flight engineer has dyslexia. Okay, that, that can happen. However, you have two other people in this cockpit that can look that don't have dyslexia for the checklist. That's appropriate. Right. Also, he was able to make it through his flight training. So I looked this up specifically, whether or not dyslexia inhibits you from joining a flight crew. And the only time it does is if it inhibits inhibits your flight training if it is so severe that you cannot complete flight training yeah you can't well brendan flies and brendan has dyslexia yeah so yeah. i i have a really hard time believing that it was as big of a problem as they say that it was yes. i think it was a really ableist attitude that they put forward in this report and i want that to be known but they don't bring it up anytime in here so that's kind of a good thing they i think they just kind of let that one be they recommend amending saudi's crew training program to include additional assertive and command training for junior Saudi captains and first officers. Wow. Crew resource management. Yes. That's a big one. That's I'm saying it That's, before it was in, right. inundated. That's their way of saying this is crew resource management being implemented. Instituted. Yes. That's the instituted. word I'm Yes. <laughs> they recommend establishing a system so that flight crews are matched to ensure that the cockpit experience level and competency is at a desired level. Such a procedure would eliminate the scheduling of junior captains and junior first officers for the same flight. Because that this was is, a terrible idea. Yes, but I will say this is a little bit 
hard to do on this flight because the captain wasn't necessarily an inexperienced pilot, period. He had time in a DC-3, DC-4, 707, and DC-8. But he still only had 6,000 hours. 7,600. Whatever. That's, that's quite a bit. He had less than 10,000. Yes, but still. In the company's ranks, he might have been one of the most senior. We don't know. Point being is he didn't have a small amount of hours. 7,600 hours, pretty good. Well, he had a small amount of hours on the L-1011. But they I, all did because realized, the airplane was new. The, the airplane was new. So what can they do about it? So this wasn't really something that I think they could practically do. But yes, I understand what they're getting at. They, they should, should be putting... But he also had problems with training. Like if it was yes. the fact that yes. he didn't have problems with training, I'd be like, okay, I agree with you. That's the real problem. But here. he had problems with training to begin with. And so, really at this point... In the first officer's career, he's still learning and taking in information. It's so hard to teach somebody a subject you don't yourself fully understand. Right, and so with this captain, the reality is, on the L-1011, he should have still been a first officer. I know that they would probably put him in the captain's seat because of the pay, and he had the experience from other planes, but the reality is, is he should have been in the right seat. And they should have had whoever the most experienced captains are at the company, who have a proven track record and training, be in the left seat. That's just the truth. And they didn't do that. They recommend to amend Saudi's personnel policy and practices to stop the rehiring of flight crew members for a flight crew position after they have been removed from another flight crew because of substandard performance. Yeah, this would have so fixed the problem, too. Don't rehire people that you know haven't done well, so you fired them. Particularly rehire them when they haven't proven anything. Yeah, like they haven't proved... Uh, it's not normal. It's not abnormal for airlines to say, hey, look, you're not performing your duties normally. You seem it. to be having a problem with this. Instead of firing them anymore, what they will do is put them through a more rigorous training and force them to kind of prove themselves well, yeah, before so they ever go back into a cockpit. Prove you learned something. Prove you improved. Yes. And then you can come back. But right. if you haven't proved that you improved, you're just going to keep making the same mistakes Correct. over and over again. Yep. Because you don't get it. Correct. They recommend reviewing and amending emergency procedures and checklists for all aircraft to separate and clarify the emergency landing evacuation procedures to prevent possible confusion of the specific steps to take in such an emergency. Basically, they want to put it in the hands of the manual instead of the captain to decide when an evacuation is necessary. Well, and they That's did that. Good. Yes, it's great. It's these on a days, checklist. These days, it is on the checklist. If there's smoke and fire, the first thing you have to do when you get on the ground is shut the engines down and evacuate the airplane. And we've talked about that with British Air Tours. Yes. We talked exactly about that on British Air Tours. Yes, absolutely we did. Because it was not the first thing on the checklist with British Air Tours. You know what is the first thing on the checklist for smoke and fumes? What? Descend. Oxygen masks. Ah, yes, good point. So they don't get hypoxia. Yeah. Or just incapacitated at all. Yeah. So, as we've told you before, we happen to have quick reference checklists. I'm not going to tell you what airline, but I will tell you that it, this particular one I'm reading is for an A319, A320. Smoke and fumes. Land as soon as possible is the first thing it says. It's don't not spend, a step. Don't spend four minutes and 21 seconds figuring out Please if it's actually land. maybe smoke or not. Yeah. Just go. Just do it. Step one. Oxygen masks and regulators on and at a hundred percent. Crew communications. Establish them. Please. Have yep. people have roles. Yep. Override the blower. Override the extract. Turn off the cabin fans. That would have been helpful here. So that it doesn't get into the compartment that Just it was. Thought. Turn off the galley and cabin something or another. It's abbreviated. Turn on your seatbelt signs. Turn on the emergency exit lights and initiate descent. And then you go to the smoke and fumes checklist in the actual quick reference handbook. If dense smoke is present at any time, accomplish the removal of smoke and fumes checklist. 
Do not delay landing to complete the remainder of this checklist. Yeah, land and get the f*** out. That's pretty much it. GTFO, my friends, GTFO. Yeah. And then it has, if it's avionic smoke, go to that checklist. Air conditioning smoke. If smoke comes from ventilation outlets and very shortly thereafter, several smoke warnings, including cargo, laboratory, avionics are triggered, suspect air conditioning smoke. Turn off the APU bleed. Turn blower to auto. Turn extract to auto, even though you just turned them off. Uh, Turn the cargo heat aft isolation valve to off. Pack one to off. If smoke continues, turn other things off. If smoke persists, do all these other things. <laughs> Point is, you're actually doing useful things instead of sitting there. Yeah, yep. trying to figure out how to get the smoke not to come into the cabin, first of all. And second of all, try to figure out where it's coming from. Because they didn't do oh, any of that. One thing right. I wanted to ask about. Do they have something to put out a fire in the call girl hold now? Most of the yes. times they have cargo hold fire extinguishers yeah, these days. Yeah, that's yes. what I was going to ask earlier, and I completely forgot about it in my rage. We'll okay. talk in a moment about standardizations for cargo holds, because okay. these, that, was a, that was a big thing about the L-1011. They talk about it. Okay. That was the NTSB's thing. Well, that was like one of the things, like, when you have a fire in the engine, you you Use extinguish yes. it using the fire the engine fire extinguisher. So do they have one in the cargo? And they you said you're going to talk about now, it. Do now they didn't. Anyways, okay. we'll talk. Okay, about. I do want to go over. There is a specific checklist for smoke in the forward or aft cargo hold. Turn off the aft or or turn off the aft isolation valve. Turn off the cabin fans again so it doesn't get into the cabin. Yep. Um if aft cargo closed, order the ground crew to not open the door of the affected cargo compartment unless the passengers have disembarked and fire services are present. Ensure that the cargo door is closed before discharging the extinguishing agent. To answer your question. Yes. There you go. If the smoke warning is displayed on the ground with the cargo doors open, do not push agent discharge switch. Request the ground crew to investigate and eliminate the smoke source. If not, discharge the fire extinguisher. An hour after the first discharge, discharge the second one. On the ground, before opening cargo doors, disembark the passengers. Yeah. Just a thought. Yep. If there is no livestock... <laughs> we'll talk about that, too, actually. What? <laughs> yeah. Not, not in depth, but we'll talk about that. If there is no livestock, turn the aft isolation valve to off. I'm assuming if there's not, don't do that. Well, because then they don't get any oxygen. You realize that livestock can also mean, like, your dog. Yes. Oh, please don't kill my dog. No. So, we'll talk about that. So, that's the extent of what the checklist looks like now. We'll talk about that, and I don't even really know why we'll talk about that, but we will talk about that. You'll see. Anyways. Maybe there's a dog in the cargo compartment? I don't know. I don't know. Or a cow. That's That's what I think of when I hear livestock. Livestock. Yeah, I know. Cows and goats. Sheep. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Anyways, so there's this whole section here that I'm not going to go through all the findings, but to sum this up, they recommended doing a surveillance and handling of carry-on baggage and yes. check bags a lot more closely, like just being so more aware of catch what's... On fire. Like the manifest thing didn't happen, so they didn't know what was there. And they also didn't no know passenger count. Like, what? Yeah. So, obviously... All of that has changed, thanks to, in part, 9-11, obviously. But also, various sabotaging and bombings and such yes. over the years. All of that's changed. So here we go. Ready for the fun one? Livestock? Yeah. Reco- they recommend that the C-3 cargo compartment, Class D, of all Saudi L-1011 aircraft, has been sealed off in an effort to confine any fire 
that may occur within it. The compartment no longer has the capability to transport animals. Oh. So what they did in this instance is Saudia decided to seal that compartment. Completely. Completely. And make sure that it doesn't... It's a vacuum. Yeah, it's a vacuum, basically. It doesn't allow any airflow. Airflow, yeah. I, as an engineer, wonder why that particular cargo compartment out of the rest was so prone to fires. Talk about that, too. Okay. That's in the NTSB's part. Other areas. This was just another thing they threw in because, you know, this is really important. (laughs) This is something that changed. In addition to the recommendations made to Saudi, the presidency evaluated areas for improvement within civil aviation, in particular PCA fire services. Immediate remedial action was taken, which was which has resulted in the kingdom's present fire services now exceeding, in most cases, the international criteria established by the ICAO. Further improvement in capability is planned and presently in progress. So at the time, they Good. had already Duh. overhauled their whole crash and fire rescue Well, they services. probably realized after this accident that, oh, no, we're not. They were inept. We're not We're ready. not prepared. And so nope. they probably were like, we need to fix that. <laughs> they realized they were prepared when they killed 301 people, which is yeah. very, very rare in aviation. Having I- everyone, they get to the ground and then everybody dies. That's very, very rare. Yes. I don't know if we've mentioned it to this point, but the when this happened, this was the second deadliest aviation disaster in the world, only behind Turkish Airlines Flight 981, which we covered in a previous episode that I don't have pulled up right now. Both Wasn't of it these also got... Tenerife, considering it happened in 77? Single. Sorry. Single aviation. Single aircraft. Yes. Okay. My bad. Both of these got heavily surpassed. Japan Airlines. Japan Airlines. Yes. That was big. Check out episode whatever in August that we did that before. I can't remember the number. It'll be on the website. Man, don't. uh, We've recorded too many now. We're at over 100. Don't expect us to know any of this. Except for like the first 10 episodes. Yeah, for for whatever reason. Okay. Now we go on to the NTSB's portion. There's only two. Both of these have to do the cargo compartment. Since it was built in the United States. Yes. Because that was the one thing they can control. They recommended reevaluating the Class D, Class Delta, certification of the L-1011C3 cargo compartment with a view toward either changing the classification to C or Charlie, requiring detection and extinguishing equipment, or changing the compartment liner material to ensure containment of a fire of the types likely in the compartment while in flight. We'll talk about this in a moment because this gets weird. But they also recommend reviewing the certification of all baggage slash cargo compartments over 500 cubic feet in the Delta classification to ensure that the intent of 14 CFR 25.857 Delta is met. So, meaning that they want to make sure that these compartments actually meet all the standards they're supposed to be meeting for fire protection. And the FAA had something to say about this. Of course they did. Here's their response. Reevaluating the Class Delta certification of the L-1011C3 cargo compartment with a view toward either changing the classification to Charlie, requiring detection and extinguishing equipment, or changing the compartment liner material to ensure containment of a fire of the types likely in the compartment while in flight. The FAA says the L-1011 is not unique in having a large Class Delta type cargo compartment that has been demonstrated to be in compliance with the requirements of FAR 25. 857D. For this reason, the Federal Aviation Administration does not believe specific action pertaining to the L-1011 as a special case is appropriate. So they decided not to change this. Neither do we find that limited tests cited by the board are sufficient in themselves to justify the recommendation action. I am disturbed in that there is obviously a prevalence for this particular cargo compartment to catch fire, as in they had 
previous incidents to compare symptoms to to establish, like, the symptoms match previous cargo hold fires. That's why it probably happened there. Yep. The fact that there is a precedent, why is this not being evaluated and changed? Right. I Yeah. I agree. Like, obviously there's a problem. It wasn't just this, because you had stuff to compare it to. Yes. It You know, sometimes the FAA makes really dumb decisions. Sometimes they make really good decisions. This ain't one of them. This was not one of them. That said, all airplanes produced these days have the fire extinguisher equipment in the it cargo just holds. Makes it's, that's a new sense. standard, and also, they have to be. Also, science and technology developed. Yes. Obviously. So, fire retardant and suppressive systems and materials are just way more profound than they were then. Yeah. Yes. They, I mean, great. They had self-extinguishing carpets. Now everything else is self-extinguishing too, probably at this point. In regards yeah. to the other recommendation, the 500 cubic foot one in the Delta classification, the FAA concurs in principle with the recommendation. The severity and progression of the Saudi Arabian fire caused the FAA to immediately question the efficacy of the class Delta fire containment concept. Immediately after the accident, the FAA began formulating a research program to be accomplished at the Technical Center to conduct a comprehensive reevaluation of the concept and regulatory standards for Class Delta cargo compartments. Prior to issuance of the board's recommendation, the FAA met informally with the NTSB staff to discuss the preliminary results of the accident investigation. At that meeting, the board staff members were advised of our program. On January 15, 1981, the Office of Aviation Standards formally requested the establishment of a research program. A copy of the request is enclosed. We believe the program we have initiated exceeds the intent of the NTSB's recommendation, and we will keep the board informed of the the significant progress in this area. So this is where they decided to actually put research into this, and they basically eliminated the the class class Delta altogether. Yeah. And now all... Major 121 operators that operate passenger aircraft have to have these and, fire extinguisher and equipment. And non-passenger. And non-passenger, yeah, and cargo. Well, they have to have cargo. They have to have the fire extinguisher equipment in the cargo hold. Well, and especially now, we've had developments in technology that have created more flammable materials. I speak in particular in regards to lithium batteries. Yes. Those are super dangerous to fly we, around. Yeah. Uh, we'll cover, I'm sure... At Eventually, a episode where a bunch of batteries exploded caused a big problem. I don't remember what flight. I don't remember when. I remember watching an air disasters on it, and I'm sure Same. eventually we will we will cover UPS, that episode. UPS. So with with the advent of many varying technologies, we've had to also address more flammable things that need to be transported, particularly through cargo. And as such, fire suppression systems have advanced to meet that requirement. Yes, they have a lot. Well, and you need to, because you don't want the entire plane to go down because something exploded in the cargo hold. Correct. I mean, if it's a bomb, you're, nah. But, like, this probably was something like a small aerosol can of something. Or something. Or a butane stove. Or a A butane stove, yeah. (laughs) Two passengers already had butane on the flight. Maybe there was one in the Maybe there was one in the If you had one of those containers in the cargo holds. Yep, that would do it. And cargo holds, by the way, are not pressurized, right? They are. They are. Are they? Yes. Or too much pressure explodes. Because that's the whole thing about the uh, cargo vents. If they weren't pressurized, when they suddenly start losing pressurization in the cargo hold and the floor collapse. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. That's also why your pets go in the cargo area, which I still hate. I have a pet. They don't have to, but if they're a certain size, they're supposed to. Milo would have to. Yes. I I remember when they used to let big dogs on. I mean, I sat next to a German Shepherd once when I was young. (gasps) I would love it. I'd be like, puppy. 
Okay, sorry, we got really off track there. Anyway, so all of this has changed. There, to the best of my knowledge, there hasn't been a devastating cargo hold fire due to its contents in... On a passenger flight, correct. For a long time. The cargo flight, the UPS was after this. Yeah, I don't remember when. I'm not saying since then, I'm just saying in a really long time from today. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Normally, fires would be like an engine fire. Of some kind. And yes. usually, as we talked about before, those get extinguished because there's fire extinguishers in the engines. And they do a good job, actually. So, okay. That's it. That's it. So, that was, what was it? I don't even remember anymore. Saudi Arabian Airlines Flight 163. Okay. Thank you to Bob again. I got slightly ragey. Yeah. Not, yeah. As, not as bad as a few weeks ago, but pretty bad. Yeah, I have to say, bad. overall. There's going to be more bleeps in this one, though. Oh, yeah. Sorry, again, after the fact. I, you were about to say in advance. I know, but I realized it wasn't in advance, <laughs> so I didn't say that. Thanks for uh, exposing me, Christy. Thank you so much for listening. Again, thank you to all our new patrons and our current patrons, if you are a current patron. And at, anybody at thinking about being a patron. Do it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Even if you're thinking about it. Even if you haven't done it. I mean, thank you anyway for thinking about it, right? You thank get... you for listening, period. Because sometimes I wonder... You do get lots of good stuff. We sent out four more care packages to our four new patrons. You today. should get them by the time you hear this episode, hopefully. Oh, hopefully. Hopefully. Hopefully you've received them. If not, you desperately need to contact us immediately. Even the UK ones. The UK ones should be there by now. Because they do get lost. That has happened. Twice, in fact. To yes. the same person. Yeah. Maybe Sorry. they got sent back to us. Maybe we need to go check. I haven't gone to the P.O. box. <laughs> in a long time. You've got to. Got to I was going to go there when I went to the post office the other day, but I didn't have the right keys. So. All right. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Check out the Patreon if you have not done so already. Check out the newsletter. You can subscribe to it on the website. Also, check out the merch page because we have a bunch of stuff. A.K.A. CRM t-shirts. CRM, 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 CRM. CRM. And if you want anything to be put on there... Feel free to just let us know. I'm in charge of that. I'll figure that out. Is there a Miranda rage warning one? Yeah. Okay. No, there's a Miranda gets mad at history one. No, I need a Miranda rage warning one with a big caution sign. I can do that eventually. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Again, thank you guys so much for listening. If you do like the show, we do appreciate you giving us a subscribe or giving us a rating. Follow. follow, Whatever it is. Because then more people can see us and it, it works. And have a safe and healthy week, everyone, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your airspeed up! We know you're all interested in history and the stories that come from telling what happens in the past. Want to listen to something that tells not just the history of the Romans or the Mongols, but rather the history of everything, like the history of religion? Then we got a great podcast for you to check out. The History Encoded podcast is for those who love history, but are not able to keep up with all the date dropping that can come with historical stories, or the boredom of a history class. The host will take you through a historical story, and each season, you will find that the ride through the story is more important than the ending of the story. Each rise and follow the story will leave you with a lesson. So check out the History Encoded podcast today on your favorite podcast app or on their website at www.historyencoded.com. That's the History Encoded podcast at www.historyencoded.com. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. 
This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.